On this episode of Transforming Cities Live, I was joined by Tyler Harris, CPA at Gersey Schneider. During our live event, we covered real estate tax tips, strategies, investment opportunities, and best practices from a tax perspective in a rapid fire format. Be sure to let me know how you like this educational episode and get on the list at transformingcities.io for future guest announcements and weekly updates. Let's jump into the conversation with Tyler. Before we jump into all of this, though, let's hit hit the audience, the listeners, with just a brief overview of, of who you are and a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah, my name's uh, Tyler Harris. I, uh, I'm a CPA. Um, we focus on my, my firm focuses on clients with net worths probably generally between 40 million and 400 million dollars. Uh, most of them, or a lot of them, are real estate professionals or or had exits for private equity. Um, and yeah, I've got, I'm in Las Vegas, Nevada. My firm's based in LA. I have, uh, I'm married and we have a three-year-old whose birthday we celebrated recently and uh, a four-month-old baby, a baby girl. So um, yeah, super excited to be here. And for all the all the viewers today, Tyler came in <laughs> at 1 a.m. last night from his son's birthday, So, but he still made it. We're still doing this thing. So thanks for joining us, uh, Tyler. Appreciate it. So let's start with this LinkedIn growth thing. And, and I think this is so fascinating how we're all connected this in this day and age, but I think this is how I first came across your work and, and, and what you educate your, your audience on is, is someone in my real estate network commented or liked uh, a few posts of yours. And then I came across the work that you've been doing and, and over time, over the, probably the last uh, eight or nine months, I've seen your audience grow tremendously. And so that you shared this with me um, ahead of the of the conversation today, and I think this is incredible. So this is um, back in 2022 to today. This growth has just skyrocketed, and I believe it's actually higher. I should have drawn like a little thing that goes off. Of it. I think it's <laughs> higher than this now. But but what has this experience been like for you? Did you expect such a large following on LinkedIn in the last you know two years ago? I didn't. I thought maybe someday I'd get to 10,000 or something, and uh, that would be great. But uh, yeah, I. It's uh, it's been a fun experience. Uh, you know, I've had to show up consistently. And actually, this chart is off. As of this morning, I lost three thousand followers. Oh I no! Think, uh, I think that the um, I was at nineteen, and I'm down to like fifteen or sixteen. But I think okay. it's sixteen. But yeah, I think I think LinkedIn went through and got rid of a bunch of bots or something. So right. That's awesome. I'm happy to have more real people following me. That's that's yeah. cool. <laughs> um, well, I mean, obviously the real people are engaging with your content. If you take a look at any of your posts, I mean, you ha usually have 20, 30, 40, 50 comments pretty regularly. Um, before we jump into a lot of the topics that you do already talk about on LinkedIn day over day, uh, you know, do you go into or did you go into your, your kind of LinkedIn um, journey with any particular mindset that you could pass along to the audience that might be a takeaway for them? Um, you know, I heard again and again and again, um, a couple of things. So number one is be consistent, show up every single day. Uh, number two is, um, just, just try to provide value. So give away 99% of everything. And, and the extra, that last 1% is what people will eventually pay you for, or are interested in, or even just need some help and implementation with their strategy. So honestly, it's, it's been, it's been great. I mean, I don't feel like anybody's been, I don't know, stealing my stuff or copying. Um, it's, I don't think there's any downside to sharing any information. So I just try to give as like freely and openly as I can. And, uh, 
and then just try to provide the best content I can. So, um, you know, some of that has to do with just uh, trying to get a decent hook, uh, which is something I'm learning how, you know, I'm a, I'm a CPA by trade, so I'm not a necessarily a writer, but just getting something to, on, on the first few lines to get you to click and read the whole thing has been a, a big thing. I, I like to get people to think too. So that's another huge part of it is just, Hey, I might not know the answer here, but let's get together and, you know, share your opinion and, um, so that's, that's also been something that's really good, uh, yeah. that, that's worked really well, but yeah, my go main goal is just being consistent and showing up every single day. And if you don't already follow Tyler, like for, you know, for example, if you came <laughs> to this live event, um, because you've, I invited you or you, you follow me, definitely check out Tyler's content cause it's super educational. And, and obviously it's brought us to this point today where we're going to dive into a bunch of stuff. So let's get to it. Let's start with the topic of debt. Cause I know that you have uh, quite a few thoughts and theories and, and, and <laughs> Uh, maybe, I don't know if you'd call it best practices. One of my favorite things about this conversation is um, I'm I'm a student just like many people here. So I'm excited to just kind of hear your thoughts on this and have you walk us through some of your thoughts on these topics. So let's start with with debt. And and I guess in this case, the three buckets that you think of debt within. Okay, great. Yeah. And, and it's not only just debt, really all this is central around like personal finance in particular. And and actually about two years ago, I was trying to go through and make my budget and realizing that inflation was starting to get moving and, and things like that. I, I just, <clears throat> I really tried to reframe debt in my life and the role it plays. Cause I'm still pretty young. I'm growing, you know, I'm building, you know, I had to buy a house and cars, you know, like just something to keep our family going. And so um, I guess I used to just have this perspective that, I wasn't saving enough money. And when I got back down to it and looked at it, like a huge portion of every single one of my debt payments is, is generating net worth and it's increasing my, my personal balance sheet. So um, <clears throat> yeah, as far as like managing this stuff, my goal back then was to try to, my income somewhat variable. I, I work overtime, I get overtime paid and then I get bonuses too. And so it was really just trying to figure out a way to put it, put extra money <clears throat> into my investments. <clears throat> and so I created like these three buckets in my personal, personal budgets. I read a, I read a book called, um, uh, Oh shoot. I forgot what it's called. Profit first. <clears throat> and profit first is basically <clears throat> aimed, excuse me, aimed at, um, helping, helping business owners get more profit out of their business. And I figured, Hey, there's no way to, I haven't seen a way to apply this to personal finance. So I ended up doing it to my, for myself and actually published a book in January, 2021 as well. Um, I just kind of like wrote it up cause I thought it would be helpful for people. But the way I run my finances is I have uh, something I call the wealth account. It's a, it's a brokerage account that um, any excess um, money that, that goes above and beyond my mortgage or anything else that will increase my net worth goes towards in, uh, being invested or just even saved with cash. Um, so everything, my, my goal is to get as much as I can into there. Um, but, but anyway, so what I did is I got basically th separated things into three different accounts. I have one account that's for my fixed expenses that are on autopilot. Uh, everything, everything gets paid out of a credit card in that account, um, on autopilot. It's just, it's just on auto pay. And I know exactly how much I need to transfer into that account every month. So everything just even straight out of my paycheck just goes straight into that account. And it, I don't even think about it. And then the next thing is the only thing that I really care about controlling is my variable expenses. So I have a separate account for that. 
But basically, after my fixed expenses are, are met, I transfer, I keep 28% of my remaining money to live off of. And then everything else gets pushed into my wealth account. And the wealth account includes things like my mortgage. It has my car payment in there too. And, and those things are fixed and, and I pay those every month, but anything up and above and beyond those payments gets, gets invested. And so it's kind of putting everything on autopilot. And um, I guess I'll just leave you with a final thought here is if the interest rate is less than the inflation rate, I consider that a good investment, um, at least as far as the debt is concerned. So I'm not in a hurry to pay off those debts. Mm. I have a 1.9% car car payment. I'm a year away from paying the whole thing off and I'm not going to pay it off early because I'll save like $200 in interest total. It's, it's mm. just not worth my time. Yeah. Um, I'd rather get the upside and, and, and be more invested for longer. Um, so I think that's about it. Yeah. And then we had talked about this too, a little bit, um, with regards to personal finance versus business finance, maybe you could, um, kind of explain this, this, uh, chart as well. Yeah. So uh, when it comes to business in management accounting, I don't know how deep I should really get into this, but in management accounting, um, if you have a decent sized business, you're trying to control your, 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 the low you, if you lower your fixed expenses, you're reducing your risk. Um, but quite often that means you have to increase your variable expenses and so it might reduce your profit. But anyway, all that to say is there are certain expenses in person. I kind of tried to translate that business finance into personal finance. And so you're going to have fixed in business, you're going to have fixed costs. Um, but that they, you know, they do, they are part of your profit. So that would be like, if you're an S corp owner, you have to have a salary, you, you pay yourself a salary, um, and then fixed costs like rent, utility wages. And then you're going to have variable stuff, um, which is, you know, quarterly bonuses. It's just your profits in the company and, um, you know, variable costs. So that might be commissions or advertising. Um, and the same thing with your personal finance. So you are going to have um, fixed expenses that pay you in the future. Like eventually your mortgage is going to be paid off. And that's that's a that's a fixed cost for the most part. I mean, obviously, you're going to have your, your property taxes are going to go up or whatever. Um, you, and then fix expenses for your current self. So that's your internet utilities, stuff like that. Uh, generally, if it's a pretty um, consistent number every single day, you know, every single month, I try to treat that as fixed. Mm. Um, and then future self variable. So that's anything extra. So if I get a bonus, 72% of my bonus is going towards investments. Uh, any overtime, 72% goes straight into that. And then, and that's the way I like to think about it. So I can just really get the ball rolling. I try to have like a target, you know, 10% at least that I'm investing just based off my base salary, but anything above and beyond that's I consider variable. And then finally variable um, expenses for your current self is like your, the things you can actually control. That's the only thing I actually focus on in my budget is simply, am I spending too much on groceries and am I spending too much on inter entertainment and travel? And that's all I focus on. Cause it, honestly, more than once a year looking at some of those fixed costs just isn't worth, worth my time and it's not even really worth tracking. Thanks for listening to this episode of Transforming Cities, brought to you by Authentic. Authentic delivers premier multifamily brand experiences and smart digital marketing. Our proven approach aims to accelerate leasing velocity, boost rental rates, and increase long-term value. Simply put, we see brand as a business asset. You can find out more at AuthenticFF.com. There's, there are generally, um, 
maybe an overwhelming amount of options for accounts and sort of like the strategies of percentages to save versus uh, the percentages to, to, to spend. Uh -huh. I'm curious if you have like a rule of thumb that you'd be willing to share with regards to both the platform that you found that works really well for you and not that you're endorsing anything in particular, sure. but what's just worked best for you. And you, you keep mentioning that sort of 28%, 72, 28 threshold. Yeah, that's just my personal uh, kind of where I'm at personally, and it, it it's going to depend a little bit on whether or not you have a you know own a house or rent. Um, I, I would consider rent as a fixed expense, um, but owning a house, I try to treat that as like a as an investment. It, I am gaining equity every payment, but yeah, I would say maybe seventy thirty or maybe like, and that's after that's after I covered my fixed costs. So just for insight. Um, I pay my wife's health insurance separately. So my fixed costs should, could be lower, but, um, we, we spend about $1,200 a month on things like, uh, health insurance, which is like 600, uh, car insurance, you know, utilities, all that stuff is, is fixed and I don't track it and it's just on auto pay. And then after that, everything, uh, I live off of a small as, as small of a percentage as I can. Um, really, I just determine that percentage based on. Um, looking at the last three months of activity saying, Hey, if I cut back just a little bit or just made myself comfortable, how much on average based on my base salary do I spend each month? And for me, 28% comes out to, you know, just as much as I need based on my base salary to enjoy my life. So mm. if I get overtime, then I get to spend, um, you know, spend extra money on a, a night out or dinner. Um, but it's all based on my base salary, kind of that. And then, and then my goal is just to put as much as I could into my wealth account. So um, you kind of have to come up with the ratios at the beginning and uh, adjust from there. And the nice thing with this is once you have that base, if you get a raise next year uh, and you're, you're kind of forcing yourself to save more and slow, slow down the, the rate of lifestyle creep. Um, right. And so the, over the last couple of years, I've made more money. I've gotten raises and, and we live a little bit better, but it's not exponentially better just because, uh, such a small percentage is allocated there. Sure. Sure. Let's drive ourselves into, um, a new category, real estate tax benefits. And, um, this is another one where I'm excited to learn more about this. And I, and again, I know you have a lot of thoughts on this, so, um, let's start at the top here with, uh, depreciation and, and the recapture of depreciation. Awesome. Yeah. So depreciation, um, for those who are not well acquainted, um, the IRS gives you a, uh, they, they, when you buy a capital asset, such as a vehicle or a, a apartment building or real estate in general, they, they have determined that you can't take the full expense of that usually in the first year. So I buy a $500,000 property. I can't just deduct $500,000 on my tax return. They make it so that you can, um, depreciate the property over a certain amount of time. So they let you expense, um, the part of that value um, on a on a straight line basis normally, um, and for real estate, it's either 27 and a half years for for single family homes, or 39 years for commercial real estate like multifamily. Um, so I said 39 years. I think I said. I just want to make sure I said that right. Um, and so really, if you buy a half a million dollar property, you know, over 39 years, you might be depreciating 20. Twenty thousand, twenty-two thousand dollars a year. You don't get a huge, uh, you know, uh, depreciation uh, deduction every single year. Um, but what it does is it does it can offset your cash flow, so you can have a positive cash flow 
but then be getting this phantom expense because you didn't actually spend any money for that depreciation you're getting allocated and it offsets your income from the property. Um, so I hope that makes sense. I'd love, you know, let me know yeah. if that, want me to go deeper into that, Chris? Um, I think there's a, there's a nuance there with regards to um, how much you can depreciate or how much you could depreciate in the past versus how much you're going to be able to depreciate in the future. Um, and we had talked about one of the examples being like a, like a car wash or like a, a real estate investment that um, had certain tax benefits that are now changing. Sure. Yeah. So um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So there's different lives to different properties and certain li like lifed property um, is allowed something since 2017 from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, something called 100% bonus depreciation. So through 2022, you could take 100%. So if you had property that was had a five-year useful life, seven years or 15 years, those things were eligible to be basically expensed in the first year. And so car washes, when we were talking about that, it are a unique opportunity because most of the car wash is considered a land improvement or equipment. And so there's not really a huge real estate component in that, although it does take up space and it is real estate. Um, mm -hmm. You'd have maybe 20 or 30% to land and then the rest of the car wash is equipment. And so it's an interesting thing when you as depending on if you're an active investor, invest and you put maybe 20% down on a car wash. And then all of a sudden you're able to take 80% of that in the first year. Um, you know, you buy a million dollar property, you put $200,000 down, and then you could take an $800,000 depreciation deduction as an example mm -hmm. and offset a huge amount of tax that way. So that's, that's just a fun thing that uh, people have used in the last couple of years. We've, we've done it yeah. and, it's just a, you have, there's a lot of things to get right with this. So I definitely recommend working with a professional. You should probably be a real estate professional if you're working on doing that. Um, or at the very least, um, you know, this isn't just for real estate professionals because depending on how you structure things, um, potentially if you have another business and you wanted to buy a car wash as a second business, um, it's not technically a real estate trader business. This is just an operating company. And so you could use the depreciation to offset your actual other yeah. business income. So it's extremely powerful. I mean, if you put 20% down and now again, the 800,000 or, well, it's really in 2023 limited to 80%. So let's just say like a $700,000 tax deduction and you're at a 40% rate. Um, that's huge. That's huge. It, mm -hmm. it could be, you know, 250, $300,000 and you actually offset more tax then you put cash into the deal. So mm -hmm. it's kind of neat. Yeah, and we may touch on that again when we get to the investments section, but let's keep rolling here with regards to active versus uh, passive status and what, what all is involved there. Okay, great. Um, and yeah, we should probably re retouch on depreciation recapture at some point, but basically at the end of the day, um, if you, depreciation reduces your basis. And so uh, at some point you're gonna have to pick that back up as income and, um, if it anyway usually it's preferential to still take it but uh, anyway so i'll move on to active versus passive um yeah so when you're talking about uh your taxes everything kind of falls into three basic categories you have active income which is usually like a w-2 your trader business income you have passive income which is the default for real estate and and any other business that you own but don't participate in and then the third option is uh, usually just investment income that 
capital gains are kind of a quasi um, section for that. It could be part passive, active, or or um, or I'm getting in the weeds here, but it, or or it could be investment. But at the end of the day, some of the best tax planning strategies come from putting all of your income in the same bucket. So if you make you know active income, um, you would want to try to have your deductions in that same category. And a lot of times real estate can provide that. So um, real estate professional status is a really unique thing. You might have a, real, a mortgage broker making half a million dollars a year or something like that as an example. If they can qualify as a real estate professional, that will classify all of their income or losses from the real estate as active. And so what that means is they can go in and buy something like a car wash and use that depreciation to offset their huge amount of income they made and basically defer that tax until the day they sell and and continue to reinvest their profits um, basically tax-free um, and, and just build their portfolio that much faster. Yeah. And um, so there's two ways, you know, there's two ways to make your real estate income active is one is real estate professional status. And number two is if you operate a short-term rental and are actively involved in the management. Um, and that could be like an Airbnb. That could be many different things. Correct. So yes, an Airbnb is a great example. Um, but basically the, the, there's a couple of <laughs> There's a couple of distinctions with that, but basically this the cold hard rule is if you participate over 500 hours in a year and you can group your activities, so it doesn't have to be per rental, but in total, um, you can offset like a W-2, for example. And so sometimes we'll have a spouse who operates the Airbnbs and, uh, and, and generates losses there. And then somebody with a big W-2 generating income and, and they're, since they're spouses, they could kind of share those two tax benefits mm. between each yeah. other. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, I've read about cost segregation quite a bit in the last year or so, just because I've been exposed to it more and more, but what's the importance of cost seg and, and why does it matter so much when it comes to real estate and, and sort of the, the tax back end? So it's, it's huge. It's, it's massive. You, that car wash example that I just said probably wouldn't work without a cost seg. Um, so what a cost segregation study is to be, try to be brief here. Is, is, a, is an engineer will go in there and, and say, hey, let me look at this building and break it into its components. Uh, generally, a tax professional, like a CPA, is going to say maybe 20%, 30% is the land, and the rest is the building, and we're going to depreciate that over 27 and a half or 39 years. And so that really like slows down the benefit of buying that because now you're, you're not getting the tax benefits as quickly. A cost segregation study makes it so that you break into each of the components. And so, you know, out of that 27 and a half year building, maybe 30% of it is actually stuff that ha has a shorter life than 27 and a half years. And so coupled with bonus depreciation, you're actually able to just expense a large portion of that in the first year you acquire it. Um, otherwise, right. um, you know, if, if it wasn't for bonus depreciation, you would still be getting that depreciation over five years instead of 30. Um, but anyway, that, that's, that, that's the idea with a cost seg is just to accelerate that depreciation. Um, and usually you want to couple that with an active, uh, strategy in real estate. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Let's, let's head on a, a alternative investments bullet point here before we move on and keep ripping through these. Cause I know that there, and I want to say out loud there, and we talked about this before we went live today. There are all, all of these little nuances that make answering these questions and talking <laughs> about these topics, not 
cut and dry. It's not binary. It's not zeros and ones. There's always for, for everyone, there's individual, uh, variables at play. So, um, I know that you're doing the best that you can to sort of attack these things, um, at a high level, but <laughs> yeah, I know, and everyone watching knows that there, there are nuances here. So just to say that out loud. <laughs> yeah. Talk to your CPA. And if you're not, not sure that they know what they're talking about, then maybe, uh, talk to a couple others as well, but, but yeah, there's always a nuance. And so always work with a professional. I don't, I don't generally recommend that you just try this on your own. You could get yourself into trouble, but alternative investments. Um, we mentioned one, a car wash is a great example um, where it's real estate, but it's kind of quasi real estate because it's really a trader business underneath. Um, you, you have things like um, laundromats, uh, just, uh, gosh, I, there's other storage, things. Storage, storage facilities. Yeah, storage yeah. facilities um, where you might have a bigger amount of bonus depreciation that you could get out of a cost seg up front. Um, another one is um, mobile home parks. So mm -hmm. you are, you're basically leasing land. And and so what's the value of the mobile home park? Well, is it the land? Not necessarily. It's, it's the fact that people could, you know, you might have some plants and some shrubs and a little office building there. But the real value, you know, if we went out and looked at the piece of land right next door, it might be worth substantially less because it's not a mobile home park. And so you could actually go in with a cost tag and say, he, he, a lot of this is actually land improvements. And that's where the value is coming from. And since land improvements are a 15 year life, it could also be a really great way to reduce your tax liability. Right. So those are, those are some good examples. Uh, they just have real estate involved. I would also say if you just run a business in general, if you're willing to make a grouping election, if your CPA knows to, when you first buy that to make a grouping election, you can use real estate to offset your business income, um, even if it's just used for solely for your business. So that's another mm. caveat I throw out there. That's great. Yeah. All right, let, let's transition into real estate investment since we're already kind of getting into those waters anyway. Um, there are a few points here that I know that you wanted to make, so I don't, I don't want to get in the way again. I'm, I'm the student here, so talk to me about this. And I know that we have a slide that is going to be comparing some scenarios as well. So just let me know when you want me to pop over to that. Yeah, so um, I'll try to hit the slide really fast, but there's five ways that real estate makes money. I think most people think about it in two or maybe three ways. So they recognize the cash flow. You might get a few percentages every year of cash flow. Um, appreciation, um, but I think people don't think about really appreciation on a leveraged um, standpoint and understanding how a leverage leverage plays into that. And then finally, they think, okay, well, tax benefits. Usually, I can get my cash flow tax free because of depreciation. Um, but to get into it, so inflation hedge um, number one: if you lock in a low interest rate, and now inflation is going up you you <laughs> the value of your debt goes down over time and so you know let's say i take out a hundred thousand dollar mortgage today ne next year that that currency is worth six percent less and so that actual value of that mortgage in year two is is 90 what is that i don't know the 90 94,000 or something like that <laughs> or 90 the so CPA. Hey, the cpa on the call <laughs> so just to, just an example. So basically what happens is at some point, and, and, and you can think about this with like a, a mortgage payment. If you got a, a house 30 years ago, or let's say, say 20, so that you could still have a mortgage uh, and you were paying, you know, it might seem like a ton of money to have a thousand dollar mortgage 20 years ago. 
but now a thousand dollar mortgage payment is 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 really small especially with interest rates where they're at and so you actually get to offset your the effects of inflation because of the debt you own i i could go a lot deeper here hopefully that makes sense i'm happy to answer questions around that uh cash flow is the easy one um you know cash flow you got to think about that is in terms of the money you invested so um, if you invested $20,000 into a deal and you're getting $5,000 a month or, or sorry, $5,000 a year in cash flow, you're going to have a 25% rate of return on your cash flow. Um, you know, people think about the cap rate and that's, that's great, but um, you know, it depends on the property. And, and if you're able to actually cash flow with less down um, quite often, that makes sense. Uh, appreciation. So that's um, you know, Again, again, a great example of appreciation. On average, I've seen different stats here and there, but on average, I've seen between four and six percent average appreciation over hundreds of years with real estate. Uh, some years it might be down, some years it's up. But if you put twenty percent into a deal and your pr property appreciates by three percent, um, I'm sorry, you put twenty percent down and the, pre the property appreciates three percent. Uh, your actual rate of return or your actual appreciation on the amount you invested is 15% um, because it's, it's three times five. You have 20, you know, it's, it's 20% is one fifth. And so three times five, it's 15%. Um, so it doesn't seem sexy when something appreciates 3% a year, but, but really mm. when you have a bit of leverage on there, all of a sudden it, it, it looks a lot better. Um Debt pay down. So you have tenants paying down your debt every single month. Um, that's your building equity without, without having to make that payment yourself. Um, and then there's the tax benefits, which we talked about. Um, straight line, it's a little less. And if you're able to take advantage of some of these strategies, it can be huge. And so just to it, it kind of show this, um, I just wanted to kind of tally up those rates of return that you might want to think about. Um, I, on a $300,000 home, I put down, you know, same, same amount of closing costs on each. If you put 5% down, um, like I did to buy my first house, for example, your rated return can be huge because, um, you know, your, your, your principal pay down is anyway, you just, you just tally all this up. So that in, in line one is, it could be like 69% in year one. Um, cause you're only invested $21,000. Mm -hmm. Year two, or sorry, for 25% in, you might have a total return between all these of like 23%. And then, and then if you own the whole thing in cash, um, if you take into account everything, you're still getting like an 11% return. So most people are thinking about that 7% cash flow, but, and that's, well, I, I guess that's really what you're getting 7% cash flow, the appreciation, and then the tax benefit of the depreciation, which is kind of smaller as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's that's the basics there. I know that there's been a um, there has been a question that has come up about um, the the pro status, which um, I'll just throw it up here. Can you explain more how to qualify? Um, so let's keep that in mind moving yeah. forward here. But um, so with regards to the professional status, let's dive into that because I know that there are a few questions and um, there we talked earlier that there there's just some confusion around what this is and how it works. Yeah, absolutely. So this is. And this is a highly audited area, by the way, because um, a lot of people take it without understanding that they sh whether or not they qualify. Um, so there's two tiers. The first is, um, you know, that first number one there is a 750 hour rule. And you have to be in a real estate trader business for more than 750 hours per year. So that would be about 15 hours per week. So, you know, real estate agent, 
um, it would qualify. Uh, I, I don't know why I'm blanking on other, other professions, but there's a lot out there. Um, and then it has to be more than 50% of what you do. And so a lot of people are disqualified because they're, they're getting a W-2. And a W-2 is usually about 2,000 hours or more. And so it's really tough to qualify as a real estate professional with a W-2. It's In fact, if you do it and you have a W-2, I would just say you're going to have a pretty high chance of audit because the IRS is going to pretty much say you're probably not a real estate professional, so don't take the status. But um, So that's, number, that's rule number one. You have to have 750 hours as a real estate professional. Number two is to get the, the income from your rental properties to be treated as active you have to materially participate. Now, there's a lot of different ways to do this. In fact, there's seven ways that the IRS has outlined that you could qualify as materially participating. But the most clear-cut one is getting 500 hours in in your rental activities. Now, the nice thing about this is it doesn't have to be 700 or sorry, 500 hours per rental. So if you have three single family houses, you don't have to have 1500 hours invested into all of this to, to use the depreciation. There is a grouping election you can do. Um, and, and I definitely recommend it. And what's great is if you do materially participate and have over 500 hours total across your rentals, you can start to invest in syndications and other passive um, investments and group those with your active ones. And so really it's not like you have to get like every, you know, you don't have to have every single property do this. So really you just have to hit that 500 hour thing. So you could be a, for example, I mean, you could be a property manager who manages their own property and then everybody else's, you know, other people's as well. And as long as you're managing your own properties and working more than 15 hours a week on average, um, you could qualify as a real estate professional. Um, and so, like I said, there's a grouping election. That's number three. And then we talked already about the tax benefits, but really it's just meaning that you can use your losses from real estate to offset your active income. Mm. So I, as someone who works in real estate, but not on real estate would not qualify as a professional status because I get a W2 I'm working in real estate, but again, not on real estate, not my own projects or my own properties. So that would be something where if I tried to slide in with this rule, Hey, I'm getting audited most likely. Yeah, I, I would, I would say most likely. Yes. <laughs> you probably should, you would not qualify in that situation. There's always some nuances there. Um, but, but yeah, generally for, for, for you, for example, you, you, you probably would not qualify um, with a W2. <laughs> yeah, we, we covered a ton here and I know that we just scratched the surface on a lot of these. So I want to transition us into a Q and a time. Um, so for anyone watching, listening, feel free to shoot in your comments and questions. We already have a few to go through here. Um, Tyler, I want to thank you for uh, being willing to run through all of these topics at a, at a very fast pace. I know that you, I know that you want to go into detail on, on all these and on a much deeper level, but I appreciate you um, playing nice and, and, and sharing your insight with all of these topics. If you want to learn more about Tyler and kind of follow his insights day to day, definitely look him up on LinkedIn. If you're not already following him, um, uh, share his profile with your colleagues and your, and your friends, um, pops his email up here as well. Feel free to give him a, an email or shoot him a DM to follow up. Um, once again, my name is, is Chris Arnold. I, I'm the host of transforming cities, really excited to have had this opportunity. So follow along at transformingcities.io. 
um, and check out our work at authentic at authenticff.com. So I want to pop up a few of these questions so far. Um, Dean mentioned something um, here about tax strategies for hospitality, hospitality heavy region um, with increasing costs. Um, and his, his example here is Sarasota, Florida on the hospitality real estate side. So big question here. Feel free to answer this any way you'd like, Tyler. Well, um, hospitality is um, kind of similar to a short-term rental. So hospitality has a lot of you know, normally I would imagine maybe a misunderstanding and, and Dean could jump in and message if he, if he's thinking something different, but you know, normally that includes like hotels. And so, um, if it's a hotel, the, the class life is going to be 39 years and the average stay of the people is normally less than seven, um, seven nights. And which means that, um, basically it's a, it's a, it's a hotel. That's the business that it's, that it's in. And so, if you operate a hotel, this is active trader business income. You do not have to be a real estate professional to claim the benefits from it. Now, the big thing is though that you do have to materially participate. And so you don't have the 750 hour requirement. However, you do have to make sure you're somehow materially participating in the activity. Uh, 500 hour rule is probably gonna be the simplest one to use there because any other rule, there's one where it's like a hundred hour rule um, and but you have to participate more than participate more than anybody else. And that would include like the, the, the room keepers and stuff like that. So anyway, any of the employees of the company. So 500 hours would be the thing there. Um, and absolutely, you should probably do things like cost segs. You're going to have a lot of stuff like furniture in there. That's going to have a shorter depreciable life and you can use uh, hotel investments to offset your active income. All right, let's pop over to another one. Um, and this has to do with cost seg. I thought this was a really good question because I've seen this before and I don't have yeah. the answer. So I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this one with regards to um, like barrier to entry for when does a cost seg even make sense? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it really depends. Um, it depends on a few things like your current tax bracket. Um, if you're in the highest bracket, you're going to get more benefit for every single dollar that that cost seg finds for you. Uh, but if you're in a 20% or 24% bracket, you know, the benefits a little bit lower. Um, so yeah, million is a good threshold. I've heard a lot. Um, and it also depends on the property. So we have, I have a, we have a client who has multiple Airbnbs and part of the amenities of that is includes a pool, very nice landscaping, you know, things like tennis courts, all kinds of nice stuff. And those things qualify as land improvements. And so even if the house was worth half a million dollars, uh, maybe $200,000 of it is land improvements because of the pool and because of everything else. And so it, if you have something that um, has a unique characteristic, I would say, um, you know, look into that. I would get a quote from a cost seg person that usually can provide you a um, right off the bat within a day. Most of them will provide you with an estimate of what they think they will get you as far as tax savings goes. Mm. And then finally, there are, you know, you could go with a lot less expensive properties where a, a fee to do a cost seg might be between three and 5,000 or more. Um, there's actually DIY versions of this that'll use software and you kind of plug the information in there. And, and those can be as low as, you know, maybe three or four, three or four or $500 to do. So it's not extremely expensive. Um, the results won't be as good with an engineered study, but 
and you might not have audit defense, but it could make sense to do do it at, at, at much lower levels, like maybe 100 or 200,000. Um, so that's just another option there. But definitely if it's above a million, I would say go with an engineered study almost 100% of the time. Mm. Um, another one came in about insights on passive tax strategies via investments in REITs. And maybe you could even explain REITs if anyone watching is not who is yeah. unclear on that. I mean, it's been, I'm assuming this audience knows that, but if they don't, um, feel free to take that one. Yeah. So real estate investment, or sorry, a REIT stands for real estate investment trust. Um, they are basically gigantic syndications of, of you just put money into a fund and they invest in real estate for you. They're required to distribute, I don't remember if it's 80 or 90% of their cash flow. Um, so there might be a little bit higher operating costs, but they do distribute the money that they get. Um, and REIT distributions or REIT dividends, um, those are considered qualified business income. And so you do get a kind of, let's say you had $1,000 of REIT dividends, right off the bat, um, you get a 20% deduction. So you really only get taxed on that $8,000, um, or sorry, $800, excuse me, of, um, of income there. So that's a big benefit. Um, it's not huge. Um, you might not get out all the benefits of actual depreciation there, but you do get the, that little 20% deduction. Um, and also read dividends. If you've held them for more than a year, they're considered qualified and they're taxed at the lower capital gains rate, which has a max rate of 20%. Um, if your income's above 200,000, there's an extra 3.8% surtax. But anyway, it's a lower rate than your individual, your active income. So there's definitely tax benefits there. It's a good place to get started, especially if um, you're trying to build a portfolio and it is hundred percent passive. So there's that as well. Tyler, we're already 45 minutes in and it goes by in a blur. So thank you so much for joining today. Um, if anyone wants to follow up with Tyler, Tyler directly, uh, again, feel free to shoot him a DM on LinkedIn or with this email here on screen. Um, and if you want to work with Tyler, obviously connect with him. He can probably help you out or at least point you in the right direction. So um, really appreciate your insight, Tyler. Thank you so much for joining me today on this live event. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye.